Father, we pray now that you would stir the affections of our heart for you as we open your word and consider it. We pray that you would cause us to believe the things that we read, that you would inspire us to holy living, that you would give us direction and discernment in the ways we should walk, and that ultimately you would encourage our hearts in Christ through this text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to John chapter 8. And verse 12. I learned in recent months that the Sony World Photography Awards is the largest photography competition in the world. Individuals from all over submit photos in various categories each year seeking to win the best picture award for that particular category. In 2017, one photographer submitted a photo into the street picture category that became one of the finalists. The image received so much attention because of its gripping effect it had on its viewers. The images of a little boy in the Philippines. He has dark skin and bright blonde hair. He's two or three years old and he's homeless with the rest of his family. His family lives in the local abandoned cemetery. So in the picture, he's surrounded by his context. Tall tombstone walls cluttered with city trash laying all around. The image is dark and sobering. In this picture, the little boy stands all alone, naked and filthy, in an environment with trash piles, discarded bones, and filled tombs. But what really makes the picture stand out is this. In the midst of the dark and decaying context of the picture, the boy has found a bright, shiny red balloon. Someone has inflated it for him, and it is now his newest toy. And as he stands barefooted in the disheveled trash, the shine of that cherry red balloon stands in deep contrast to the darkness and dirt all around this young boy's cemetery home. And like that brand new shiny balloon seems out of place among the rubble, Many viewers see the deeper contrast of the picture as showing this young, precious life living in the midst of ruin. That contrast of bright versus dim, shine versus dull, light versus darkness, as displayed in the picture, is the theme of the text we're in this morning. Jesus spotlights, if you will, the contrast specifically of light and darkness, good and evil, being found versus being lost. And like many cases, the positive invades the negative. The red balloon outshines the filth. The new stands out from the old. The light penetrates and overcomes the darkness. It's this theme we see in our text of study. Look with me in John chapter 8, 
beginning in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. In what has just been a couple of years now, Jesus has upset not a few people with his various claims and actions. Just remember briefly what has disturbed his opponents in just the first seven chapters of the Gospel of John. They didn't like when he cleansed the temple and claimed authority over it. They didn't like when they healed the man by the pool on the Sabbath and claimed authority over it. They didn't like when he called God his father and claimed to be one with him. They didn't like when he confronted them and claimed that they didn't love God. They didn't like when he fed the crowd and said, I am the bread from heaven. They didn't like when they, he called them to eat his flesh and drink his blood and claim to be the source of life. And recently, they don't like his growing popularity in the temple as he makes all sorts of divine claims. See, within the Gospel of John, there is a growing popularity who simply do not like Jesus for what he does or what he says. And today in this text, we see Jesus is back at it again. If you consider that this text simply continues on from chapter 7 and verse 52, as I argued last time we were in John, then you see that Jesus is still talking to the crowd at the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's there where the people would worship in their numerous rituals. Last time, most memorable, remember, the high priest would pour the water all over the altar and Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. And it's in the same context, possibly in the evening at this point, Jesus makes another astonishing claim. Just as the water connected to one of, his pop, one of their popular rituals, so too does his claim about light connect to one of their other practices as well. Before we consider more in depth about Jesus' claim to be the light of the world, let's consider briefly 
how this theme is seen out then throughout the rest of Scripture. It's important to feel the weight of what Jesus says here, to grasp the significance of his claim to be the lie of the world. It's important to grasp the undertones of how the rest of Scripture would use those themes. The themes that would be in the minds of the people. It's no secret that light and darkness are themes in God's word and common themes that are often juxtapositioned to one another. This is even seen in a non-biblical world. So if you go ask any person on the street, what connotations relating to good and evil do you have with light and darkness? The average person will say, well, light represents good, darkness represents evil. And it's those themes that are seen in full picture in the scriptures. The connotations that are often accompanying darkness include lostness, feeling your way through without direction, scariness, evil, negativity. It's why if you lift an abandoned plank of plywood, you'll discover roaches not roosters. Because roachers are drawn to the dark, the place of cover, the place of secret, the place of impropriety. But the rooster's drawn to the light and he's ready to announce the sun is up every morning and you should be too. And the roach runs to the darkness and shame. The rooster eagerly anticipates announcing the light. It's these type of associations of darkness that are clear to us and they're clear in Scripture. Listen to this, Ephesians 5.11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. 1 John 1.6. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie. Do not practice the truth. 1 Thessalonians 5.5. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. And all over scriptures, there's this link between darkness and depravity. Similarly, throughout history, we have the positive image of light. In the beginning, God declared, let there be light. And we saw that it was good. When God's people are led into the dark, scary wilderness in Exodus 13. What provided guidance to them? God did. Specifically how? And a huge pillar of fire blazing before them. As the people travel through the desolate, dangerous lands of the Old Testament, songs like Psalm 27.1 and Psalm 119 filled their hymn books. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. In the dark, desolate lands of the Old Testament, even their prophets foretold of a great salvific light to come for them. Like in Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of darkness, on them has light shone. And then being the people of light prophets spoke of how the people of God would be the illuminating light among the surrounding nations like in Isaiah 49 6 I will make you as light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth 
So you understand, building up before this passage even takes place, there's an entire group of people who understand and know the rejoicing light of Yahweh. And also consider that literal light was probably much more appreciated to, by them than it is to us. Because they knew well the reality of literal darkness. We don't grasp that as well as they did, perhaps. And just consider your house at night. Your house at night is not dark. Not as dark as theirs. You've got a little light coming from your clock. You've got the various indicator lights on the electronics in your home. You've got the little night light guiding you in the bathroom. We even have lights that display our houses at night. We have porch lights and floodlights that know to come on at the trigger of movement. Now, we don't know dark like they knew physical dark. In their tents in the wilderness, in the city of Jerusalem, there are no street lights, no flip of a switch. So when you consider light and darkness in contrast together, for these people, they appreciated the light of God and they understood the positivity with that image. One of the rituals that they participated in the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles, which they're in the context of here, was the lighting of four giant torches in the corners of the court of women near the temple. So we'd have young priests climb up tall ladders at each of the corners with huge bowls on them. They'd fill them with oil and light the torches so that the entire surrounding temple courtyard would be glowing with this fire at night. The people would sing and dance. They would enjoy the light invading the dark. And as they did, the entire city had a, a glow on it from central temple point. So consider, it's to these people who had the experience of the darkness of the Old Testament in their background. It's to these people celebrating in this festival with giant torches lit as they sing and dance, it's to these people, likely within the context of this festival, that Jesus makes his claim. Verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What does it mean for Jesus to be the light of the world? Well, we know that light sheds illumination so that you have a greater ability to see. But light is also spoken of in terms of enlightenment. It informs, it fills with knowledge, it teaches us, it gives us what we have even termed as, it gives us the light bulb moment when suddenly we, we receive greater clarity and comprehension on a matter. Light illuminates and it enlightens. This is how Jesus is the light of the world. It's a metaphorical way to say, through him, you can see in front of you in your life. And through Jesus, you can find your way in the journey. 
You can stay on the right track, but also through him, it's your mind that's enlightened. It's like the piece of the, the puzzle finally fits together because you've found the missing piece. The door that always has been locked has now flung open because you found the key. You may say, well, I've been getting along just fine in life without Jesus, thank you. I don't have any problem seeing. I don't have any problem understanding. I'm making it my own way and I'm pretty good at it, actually. If that's a mentality that you have this morning, I would just ask you, are you doing okay though? Or maybe you've just learned to be nocturnal. Maybe you've just embraced the dark. Maybe you've never experienced what walking in the light really is like. And you've just adjusted to your context you've only known. Jesus is the light in that he leads us forward and he is the light in that he enlightens our mind to the flourishing way of life that God intended us to have, but that we had turned away from. When Jesus makes this claim, notice what he says happens to those who follow him. Verse 12, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So first, in following Jesus, you don't walk in darkness. Second, you have the light of life. Now, of course, this means if you don't follow Jesus, there's the truth of you'll be walking in darkness without the source of light in your life. Why does Jesus use this image of darkness, walking in darkness, to help us understand him being the light? Well, it's because we know the feeling also well. Right? If you've ever been in a dark room, a dark environment where you can't see in front of you, what does it feel like? It just, it just feels like you're just wandering aimlessly without any direction. My in-laws had a small dog at one point who, in her old age, basically became blind. She would move slowly across a room, even a, a well-lit room, and sometimes she would even walk right into a wall. And near the end of her life, she was basically moving around based off the sniff of her nose. Just carefully sniffing her way along before proceeding cautiously, not knowing what was ahead of her. That's how Jesus likens one not following him. For whoever doesn't follow him, that person is choosing to walk around in darkness. You know, just, just moving along like their eyes are closed, their hands are stretched out in front of them and they're just cautiously stepping about hoping not to fall over the edge. If you're not following Jesus today, does life feel dark to you? You say, no, I'm, I'm pretty good, actually. Well, often in our love of darkness, we embrace it. Often in our pride of darkness, we say, you know, I'm fine. But in your heart of hearts, if you're not following Jesus, does life feel dark? 
if you became a Christian later in life, do you remember when life felt dark to you? Of course, you're moving about, but there's really no end in sight. And uh, yeah, you're living, but you're not really living for anything. Oh, you're thinking in your mind, but your mind is constantly plagued with wrong thoughts, dark, disturbing thoughts. Yeah, you exist, but you go throughout your days without really much purpose. Is there anyone here that you just feel like life is like walking through that desolate desert in the middle of the night? You don't know where you're going. You have your arms stretched out. You're just proceeding forth cautiously. And you don't know it, but there's like 500 million miles ahead of you the same way without any direction. And you are tempted to think, is this all life is? And you're proceeding forward and you find something and oh, this feels hopeful and you, you take it up and you, 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 you put it up to your mouth to receive the nourishment of it and it just turns out to be an awful cactus. Time and time again, disappointing. You question, what is the point of it all? What am I even doing here? Where am I even going? Doesn't Jesus describe it perfectly with the image of walking in darkness? And sometimes, listen, sometimes we learn to cover our lostness with stuff or just more sleeping around or with more climbing the ladder at work or more and more until you want more of it. And it just feels meaningless. It feels like the one-time Hollywood star that I read about who committed suicide and he left a note before he did that said, I committed suicide because basically I'm bored. Friends, hear the words of Jesus to you. If that's you, hear the words. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What? Just imagine if life was meaningful, that your days had purpose and your efforts and your thinking had direction, your movement had de destination. And imagine if everything you did had significance, eternal significance. Even the small things, the meanderings of your life, the routine, the casual, the mundane events, what if they had eternal significance to them that brought joy and satisfaction and contentment, fulfillment? You say, I'll take that. Jesus says, I'll give it. I'm the light of the world. So how, do I, how do I get that? Turn away from the lure of self-reliance. Oh, I'll just figure it out. I always have. Turn away from the pride that says, I have everything I need within me. Turn to Jesus who came into a dark, dark world beaming with perfect righteousness. Turn to Jesus who went to the cross to take the penalty for dark sin. Turn to Jesus who, over, who, who rose from the dead, overcoming the greatest darkness, the darkness of death. And he gives an invitation to each of you, turn away from darkness of your sin and follow him into the light. 
And what happens when you follow Jesus in the light? Well, he brings you out of the darkness. Listen to the wonderful news of Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. It's like Jesus takes you out of the desolate, dangerous desert where you can't see anything in front of you and he puts you into his eternal kingdom, not as a visitor, but as a child. He redeems you. You say, what about all the bad stuff I've done? He forgives you. Friends, it is as simple and glorious as it sounds. Jesus is the light of the world, the only hope in darkness, the only source of illumination and enlightenment. He is the light to any who would believe. Now that has always created pushback. And there's pushback in this text. Jesus makes this claim that I've wanted to spend most of our time on this morning. But I want you to see the pushback from his opponents. Pushback that still is given today. Look at verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Basically what they're saying right there is, says who? Uh, you say you're the light of the world? Says who? You? Yourself? Yeah, we saw Abraham last night too. In other words, we don't believe you unless you have a witness that will support your claim. And isn't that the same pushback today? For a skeptical, non-believing world, give me the evidence. They say, you say it about yourself if you want, but you're only bearing witness about yourself. We need witnesses. We need evidence. Now, why would they say that? Well, look at verse 17. Jump down to verse 17. Jesus points it out for them. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. That's why they demand Jesus to give supporting witnesses for his claim. Because in the law and their custom, a claim like that had better be supported by someone besides yourself. But consider this momentarily. Does Jesus need a witness to be telling the truth here? D.A. Carson rightly points out that light needs no witness to itself. He writes, quote, light cannot but attest to its own presence. In other words, we don't need a committee to form a vote to determine if the lights are on in this place or not. It's self-evident. Christians remember this truth. God doesn't have to play by the rules of his critics. To prove himself as actual. Now people question the existence of God all day long with lots of mocking undertones in their statements and God is so gracious and kind to give revelation of himself but he doesn't have to in order to authenticate his existence. God exists whether they have evidence for it or not. God is true whether the whole world is a liar. God is, period. 
He's in no way dependent on the amount of evidence one can provide to prove his existence. Jesus makes an astonishing claim and they want witnesses to back it up. Yeah, you're the lie of the world. Says who? And even though he doesn't have to, in this moment, Jesus will play by the rules of their game. Here's the basic outline for the rest of the text. Jesus is going to give them two witnesses that support his claim and their response to the two witnesses will further show Jesus' original point that they are lost in darkness. Who's the first witness Jesus gives? Well, we see the first one in verse 14. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Now, I want to encourage you always to have your Bibles open, but have your Bibles open especially here. We're going to deal with the phrases he uses to see the truth of this scripture. Verse 14, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For, now here comes the support for that claim. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. Now what I find fascinating about this section, this scripture, what Jesus just says here is, he makes this claim and he gives his support statement for it. And the first witness that he brings is not a person, but a place. Now we expect witness to be a person. Jesus gives them a place. Do you see this in the text? Look what I mean. Verse 14. Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. And they're saying, why? How do we know that? That's what they're asking. How do we know it's true? So he says, even if I bear witness about myself, it is true. For, this is how you know, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. That's your witness. What I'm saying is true because... I know where I came from and where I'm going. It's not a who, it's a where. It's not a person, it's a place. Now how does where he came from and where he's going support his claim to be the light of the world? And some people say, well, he's really just referring to God here. He came from God, he's going back to God, God is his witness. And listen, I think that's true. But I think Jesus is intentionally more nuanced here. God, the Father, is certainly a witness of Jesus' truth. We're going to see that in a moment as a second witness. Spoiler alert. But Jesus here is more specific. He says, what I say is true, and here's how you know it's true, because I know where I came from and where I'm going. You see that? And so my question becomes... How does a place validate his claim to be the light of the world? Well, where did he come from and where is he going? The witness Jesus brings on his behalf here is eternity. It's heaven. It's the heavenly kingdom of, of, of God. In other words, this is how I think Jesus is reasoning with them here. You want a witness for the truthfulness of my saying? Here's a witness for you. How about all eternity? 
How about all of heaven is my witness? All the angelic beings, the myriad of angels, the host of heaven, the creation of eternity, the seraphim and cherubim together, all the creation of eternity, past and future, stands up and acknowledges my claim right now. They're all shaking their head in the affirmative. Yes, he is the light of the world. So consider this, Christian. When you feel like the minority here in our culture, and more and more you may, like, man, it feels like everyone's against Christianity. Maybe that's how you feel. Church history feels that. Maybe you'll start to feel it more. When you feel like the minority, realize when you consider the aspects of eternity, you're actually in the majority. A great majority. He says, see, my testimony is true because I know where I came from, eternity. I know where I'm going, eternity. That's your witness. The eternal realm of heaven bears witness to my claim. It's like Jesus says, longer than any of you have been alive, I've been the light of the world. It's like he says, your skeptical question in this precise moment of history does not falter what has been true for all eternity. You want to witness here and now There's been a witness forever. There's been a witness forever. My nephew recently told me of having a spiritual conversation with one of his co-workers who was a skeptic of God. And my nephew admitted to me that he was scared about what to say to this individual. He said, I didn't really know how I was going to approach it he said but actually when I first when I started talking he said Uncle D it was just like God just kept giving me more and more words to say and I just kept talking somehow I was proud of his courage and I was actually impressed with the statement that he left his co-worker the statement that he left his co-worker with they they had had a good conversation it's coming to an end and he left him with this thought he said You know, eternity is a long time to be wrong. Now, I thought that was a pretty bold statement to make. If nothing else, it's a soul-stirring statement. It makes us deal with the question, what am I to do with the possible reality that existed before me and the one that will exist after me? Do you know Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has placed eternity in the heart of man? Which means you know eternity's coming and I know it's coming. They all know it's coming. And it's a long time to be wrong. Even as he tells Jesus, even as he tells his opponents this, they remain lost. You want to witness? There's a place of eternity that bears witness. Look what he tells them in verse 14. I know where I come from and where I go, but you, you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. Notice this is another way of Jesus showing them they're still in the dark. Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. In other words, you judge purely from a human standpoint. 
simply by what you see and feel and reason. Your judgment is based on the flesh alone. That's how you make your judgments. Verse 15, I judge no one. Now, this statement has caused many Christians confusion. They say something like, wait a minute, isn't part of Jesus' job to judge? And that's true. Just look over in verse 26 of this chapter where Jesus is going to say shortly to them, I have much to say about you and much to judge. (laughs) So which is it? Jesus, do you judge no one or do you have much to judge? Well, there's a couple of ways that you can understand what he's saying here. He could be saying, as he just said to them, you judge according to the flesh, according to human standards. He could be saying, I judge no one like that. When I judge, it's based on divine truth. Or he could be meaning, you all judge by the flesh, and I judge no one yet. Meaning, he came into the world to save, but one day it will turn over. Will it be where it will be time to judge? Either way, here, Jesus has pointed out at their bad judgment. Simply looking at him through fleshly means, rendering a bad judgment. Basically, whether they trust him or not, or whether, basing whether they trust him or not, simply on human standards. Jesus doesn't do that. But look at verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. It's the same way he said verse 14. Remember, even if I do bear witness, now verse 16, even if I do judge, here comes his second witness. Verse 16, my judgment is true for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. There's your second witness. Not only are my claims true and all of eternity bears witness to that, but all of my judgments and renderings are true because the Father bears witness to it. Look at verse 18. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Do you remember what happened at Jesus' baptism? There you have God, God the Son fulfilling all righteousness. There you have God the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And what about God the Father? He speaks. He bears witness. This is my beloved Son in whom I am pleased. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. All of eternity sings harmony, giving witness to the truthfulness of Jesus. And God the Father sings melody, bearing witness to his claim. If you're not following Jesus, if you don't trust in Jesus, if you don't believe in Jesus, what will you do about the eternity that's in your heart? And what will you do about the Father's witness? There's a lot of skeptics that don't like the witnesses Jesus gives here because immediately they say, well, isn't that convenient? He appeals to witnesses that we can't even verify. We know, we want to know if he's telling the truth and he gives us witnesses that we can't even talk to. 
And Christians, here's where you shouldn't feel burdened to explain more than Jesus has explained. In fact, what the Christian should do more of is shift the burden of proof onto the skeptic. You may think, well, I don't know if I can believe what Jesus says. This person's asking me for evidence to verify if it's the truth or not. And all of a sudden you start to feel a burden like, well, what, what sort of evidence do I give them? And there's lots of good evidence. There's lots of good reasons. There's lots of good things to talk about. But Christians would do well to shift, learn to shift the burden of proof back to the skeptic by saying, let me ask you, do you have any proof that Jesus is lying here? Do you have any proof that eternity does not exist? Any proof that the Father doesn't speak on his behalf? Because to the contrary, this man has millions of followers throughout history who give testimony that he's actually, he actually did what he said he would do. And there's people today who proclaim about how they once walked in darkness, but now they live in light. Are they all making it up? Like, you, dear Christian, your testimony is not the gospel, but your testimony is precious in that you know what God has done for you. Does the skeptic have any proof to suggest that you're lying? What will you do with eternity that's in your heart? And what will you do with the God who made you? I should close. Jesus has issued his claim. They don't like it. They ask for witnesses. He gives them two, and their response shows they're still lost in darkness. Verse 19, where is your father? It's like Jesus is done playing the game. And he answers, verse 19, you know me, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. That's how lost in darkness they are. I want to close with this question. What is needed for those who are lost in darkness? Jesus tells us a little bit later in this gospel, chapter 12. Don't check out at this point. Listen to what Jesus says. John chapter 12. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. My closing word to you is that there's still time to walk in the light, to believe in the light, to become a son and daughter of the light so that darkness won't overtake you. Don't wait too long and miss the light while it lingers now. Two scriptures and we're done. Each of these contrasts views of eternity. And to be clear, we are all headed in one of these directions. 
Revelation 21, 23 speaks of the eternal city of God and it's described like this. Listen carefully. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. That sounds glorious. Contrast that eternity with this eternity for those who are not found in Christ. Matthew 25, 30 from the mouth of Jesus and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh friends, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk in the light lest the darkness overtake you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus into the world to be the light of the world. Thank you that he has provided illumination for us and enlightenment to us. Oh Lord, give us as believers confidence in his word. Rejoicing in his claim. Calls us more and more to be people of the light. And oh God, we pray that as his light lingers just a little longer, that you would bring more and more people out of the darkness into the light. We pray that in this room, even now, that you would stir the eternity that you put into the hearts of lost people. You would stir it up to bring them into the light. Do it by the power of your spirit from your preached word. In Christ's name, amen.